and welcome to Inside Writing, the Faber Academy podcast. My name is George Miller, and this is the fifth in our series of podcasts. Like most of its predecessors, it was recorded at the Faber Academy in the heart of Bloomsbury. But unlike its predecessors, this programme is devoted to just one guest, writer and journalist Erica Wagner. The aim behind these podcasts is simple. If you're a writer struggling to get started, make progress, or reach the finishing line, we hope these conversations will provide you with a mixture of practical advice, suggestions for reading, and encouragement to help you keep going. And just as important, we hope they'll make entertaining listening, and remind you that all writers, however experienced, come up against obstacles from time to time. I described Erica Wagner as a writer and journalist a moment ago, but that really doesn't begin to do justice to all her accomplishments. Erica was born in New York City, and educated there and subsequently in England, including attending the MA course in creative writing at the University of East Anglia, where her tutors were Malcolm Bradbury and Rose Tremaine. She was until a year ago the literary editor of The Times, a position she'd held for 17 years. She's active as a reviewer, interviewer, feature writer, tutor, judge of the 2014 Booker Prize, writer-in-residence at the British Library, and she's hard at work on a biography of Washington Roebling, the man who built the Brooklyn Bridge. She's also the author of a collection of short stories, Gravity, a novel, Seizure, and a book about Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath. Perhaps inevitably, then, one of the questions I wanted to ask her when we met earlier this summer was how she manages to fit it all in. But I began by asking her if she would describe her New York childhood as bookish. Absolutely. I had a childhood that I would describe as bookish. I was always a reader. Both my parents were readers, my mother especially, I would say. I went to summer camp, um, which is something common to many American city childhoods anyway where I decided that I didn't mind being bullied because I was a reader. I was not a sporty child. Yeah, so, you know, reading and writing, you know, pretty early on, the two became not indistinguishable, but intertwined for me, was just part of who I was. From being an interest and and even a passion, did you, by a certain stage, also feel it was a vacation? It, was, it wasn't just something you were going to do for pleasure. It was something that you actually wanted to make the centre of your working life. I almost think it's a funny thing to talk about writing for pleasure. Because I think if you do have a sense of vocation, it's a strong word, but I think I do have that. Often, pleasure doesn't come into it. And there have been times where I've thought, gee... If I could do anything else, I would. This is really hard. It's very strange, this idea that there's something within you that you know you want to express in language, and yet you struggle to find the appropriate language to express it in. And throughout your life, it's a constant struggle, a process of education, fascination, to find the way that you can do that best. But absolutely, and I think at the Faber Academy, one of the great things is you meet plenty of other people who feel this mysterious pressure, like an internal pressure, that this is what you have to do. Is it almost like a binary opposition? It's almost like you have that 
or you don't have it. There are no half measures. You either have that compulsion that will make you right, come what may, or even if you have sort of nebulous ideas of wanting to be a writer, that there's just something lacking, or, or is, it, is it more of like a spectrum, would you say? I think it is a spectrum. I think, I believe firmly, I think there's a lot of mystification around writing as an art form that does not surround many other art forms. Maybe that's because reading and writing is something that we all use in our everyday lives. If we're telling a story about what happened to us at work today, if we're writing a grocery list, reading and writing is part of the fabric of our lives in the way that ballet or playing the trombone is not. And strangely, almost in opposition, I think because it is part of the fabric of our lives, writing as a craft, as an art, almost oppositionally, then tends to have an aura of magic about it. Absolutely. I'm not saying that there isn't an aura of magic about it. And I think certainly if you are sitting down to write something when you could be doing something else, watching the football, eating dinner, you have some sense of internal pressure. But as with any other art or craft, if you stop to think about why you're doing it and look at the way that other people have done it, you can develop that craft in the same way that you can learn to be a better cook or a better musician. And I think that if you do stop to think about how you use your craft, that will make you more inclined to keep practicing it. You were born in, in New York, but you came to Cambridge to do a, an undergraduate degree in English. And I read you saying somewhere that you came out to the other end of that still with a desire to, to read books, which was by no means a, a foregone conclusion, because no. some people suffer three years of immersion and decide that they've had enough of their, their Chaucer and their Eliot yes. and whatever. Yes, um, miraculously, I feel I came out the other side still wanting to read books. Um, yes, and I did an English degree. I guess I'm glad I did that English degree. But it seemed very disconnected from the pressure that I felt to be a writer to read in the way that I felt a writer would read or would learn to read. And while I'm very glad that I encountered quite a lot of the material that I encountered when I was reading English, often I've had to come back to it, actually, to approach it in the way that means more to me, I guess, as an artist, really. So yeah, I, th I think doing an English degree, it's, it's absolutely, it's not a requirement. <laughs> After Cambridge, you went on to UEA, where you did an MA in creative writing with Malcolm Bradbury and Rose Tremaine. Was that really a critical moment yes. in your development as a writer? Can you say a little bit about what you got from that? Well, I suppose one, in a way, one of the central things I got from that, aside from my husband, um, <laughs> who was also on the course with me. That was an optional extra. <laughs> um, one of the things that I got just by deciding to do it and committing to that year, that was a way of saying to myself, this is 
what I want to do. This is a huge part of who I am and what I want to do. So, you know, aside from the fact of being admitted to the course and what happened on the course, just the fact of it was crucial. And I think that's true for a lot of people over the years who have done that. And then on top of that, it was a really remarkable year. Um, Malcolm Bradbury, of course, was still teaching. He had started the course famously with his single pupil, Ian McEwan. And, you know, it was interesting. This was 1990-91, so a while ago now, and it was still a very small course. There were only, I think, 12 of us. It hadn't been broken up. You know, now there's a screenwriting course, there's a poetry element. Um, it was fiction and some screenwriting, which you could sort of drop into if you wanted to. You didn't have to pick one or the other. So we worked, you know, for part of the year with Malcolm and then for part of the year with Rose Germain, who now, of course, has just been made chancellor of the university, which is wonderful. And they were very different teachers, but, but wonderfully so. Because it was such a small course, it was an incredibly concentrated and focused time. You know, talking about putting the hours in, that's, that's what I did. And that's something that I really learned to do and developed the discipline to do that and was with other people who wanted to have that discipline. And so aside from the feedback that we got from Malcolm and Rose and indeed from each other, that that was a great thing. In researching this interview and sort of looking at the, the phases of your life, you seem to go from the MA in creative writing to being the literary editor of the Times, and I couldn't, I couldn't sort of fill in the in the between? stages in between. So, how did you come to be literary editor of the Times um, at really quite a quite a young age? Yes. So after I left UEA, I went back briefly to New York, where I did different kinds of temp jobs and was writing all the time. And then I came back to London to be with Francis, who I'd met. We, he wasn't my boyfriend when we were at UEA, but we wrote, again, our, the reason we started going out was because we wrote each other letters. You know, it was a literary, and I, it's funny now because when I think back, I somehow think it wouldn't have been the same if we were emailing each other or texting each other. We both still have this cache of letters. Uh, so I came back to London and I started doing different kinds of freelance work connected to writing. I read manuscripts for publishers. Um, I also spent a couple of years, um, really interesting years, uh, researching a book about the royal family for an American author called Donald Spoto, who is best known for his wonderful biography of Alfred Hitchcock. But he was commissioned to do a book called well, if you're American, dynasty, or dynasty, if you're English, about the Windsors. He was in LA, so I spent kind of a year and a half in the British Library doing really serious research on his behalf, which was fascinating and an education in itself. And actually now that I'm, I'm now writing a, a biography, nonfiction, and all that work years ago has been very helpful to me. I started working freelance reviewing. I wrote to the then literary editor of the Times, who was Daniel Johnson, who's now the editor of a magazine called Standpoint. And he commissioned me to do some reviews. And at the time, 
I sort of couldn't decide whether I wanted to work as a job in publishing or in journalism. I was sort of havering between the two. And then I thought, well, I think I will go towards journalism and ended up as Daniel's assistant in the days when literary editors had secretaries, which they don't really anymore. And about six weeks after I joined the Times, indeed at a quite young age and with some trepidation, but I was the secretary, Daniel left to be comment editor, the editor of the comment section, and the editor of the paper at the Times was Sir Peter Stoddard, now the editor of the TLS and an extremely literary man. And the only job um, on the paper that he hadn't done, that he wanted to do, was be the literary editor. So he told me uh, that he wasn't going to give the job to anybody else. He was going to be the literary editor, and I would help him. He was, however, quite busy editing the paper. Um, So quite quickly, quite a lot of it fell to me. I would describe it as a steep learning curve. But those are often the best kind. I mean, I was very lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. But either you can do things or you can't. The lesson that I learned from that time was when that period of my life started, I really had no template of how to do this job. So I thought, you know what? I have nothing to lose. I am just going to do it the way I think it ought to be done. If I'm wrong, I'll be out of here. What the hell? I think that's a pretty good way to go about things because it's not that you shouldn't take advice or listen to people who are wiser than you, but it was something I cared about deeply. I wanted to get it right. It was kind of scary (laughs) at times, but, you know, never less than fascinating. And so anyway, that was was the trajectory. So for someone who's not quite clear about what a literary editor does, can you say... Well, I mean, how you how you fashioned the job you described, yes. you know, fashioning the job the way you thought it should be. So how did what did you try to do with it? Um, well, if you're the literary editor of a newspaper, every day <laughs> publishers send you sacks and sacks full of books and you have to look at them and decide which are the ones you're going to review. I mean, that's the kind of nub of the job. Uh, there are all kinds of variables depending on how much space you have in the paper, how many pages you need to fill. In my time at the Times, and I was there for 17 years, that went up and down. Sometimes I had a little bit of space, sometimes I had quite a lot of space. You have to decide within that space which books are going to get short reviews, which ones are going to get longer reviews. You have to find a balance between what you think you are interested in and maybe not a lot of other people know about, but they'd like to know about and the stuff that they already know they want to know about. You know, the new John le Carre, the new Harry Potter. But then, you know, to, to me, my, my favorite part of the job was the part where I got to whisper in people's ears and say, you have never heard of this book, this person, but you should have, you know, or now is the time. That was really exciting. It also, you know, to me, because the wonderful thing about books is books are about everything. So a lot of what I did um, was kind of farming things out to other parts of the paper. 
partly because, you know, space is always limited. So if this is a wonderful book about, you know, gardens, maybe the gardening pages could do something about it. So I saw myself as a kind of uh, dissemination point also, um, for, you know, throughout the paper. And I suppose you're, you're kind of matchmaking in a sense, because you're finding books which are interesting, and you're trying to m- match them up with writers yes, who right. will say things which are interesting to the readers a- about right. those books. That's right. And, and, and sometimes, you know, that will depend on, um, sometimes then the books that you cover can depend on the people that you know. Sometime in the 90s, um, the late 90s, you know, I became aware, this is just one example, of a wonderful American writer called Thomas Lynch, who is a poet um, and an essayist. At his day job is being an undertaker. He runs a family firm in Michigan. And, um, and he writes wonderfully about being a funeral director. He's a marvelous writer. I interviewed him. <laughs> that meant... It wasn't something that was in my pages every week. But if a, if a book came in that was connected to his area of expertise, where maybe it was a book that we didn't have to review, because I knew Tom, I knew we'd get a beautiful piece out of it. The name of this podcast is Inside Writing. And I guess you were as inside writing, really, as it was possible to be. I mean, did you, did you feel that you were an influential powerful person in the world of books because you know if you're a first-time novelist getting a a, a good review in the 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 London Times could make all the difference couldn't it I guess if you put it that way yes but I never thought about it that way and I don't think it's helpful to think about it that way the way that I always thought of myself was as the surrogate reader for my readers you know reader-in-chief I wanted to engage with books and authors as a kind of medium for, for them. I never stopped, you know, I, I, because I'm a writer first and foremost, I guess, that's the way that I read fiction and nonfiction. Of course, I am a critic, but I have always, particularly with fiction, um, I, because I am a novelist too, a writer of fiction too, I know that when you write fiction, particularly fiction, nobody writes fiction with the aim of having someone analyze it. You write fiction with the aim that people will love it. Now, that also means some people won't love it. Nobody's right and nobody's wrong in, in those instances. So I, that, you know, I, I have sort of mixed feelings. It's one of the things about book reviews. When my novel was published in 2007, I was pleased to discover what seemed to me proof of this theorem, which was that when the book was reviewed, <laughs> the reviews were divided pretty evenly, half and half. Some people really loved it. Some people really didn't like it. Interestingly, they all talked about the same things. So some people thought, that's for me. Some people thought, that's not for me. They noticed (laughs) the same things. So I never thought it was helpful 
to think, here I am, this big cheese in the literary world. But, I, you know, I don't think anyone, no one that I knew, that was one of the great things about my job, and still, as I'm no longer literary editor of the Times, but continue to be deeply engaged with readers and publishers, and everyone I know just wants to find that book that makes your hair stand on end. That's all. That's all. Or if they're writers, that's what they want to do. It isn't really any more or any less than that. That's what kept me interested, you know, for, for all those years. I think it would be pretty boring <laughs> to be swanking around thinking how important you were all the time. You, you mentioned, Erica, being a writer first and foremost. And I wanted to ask you a very practical question. How do you carve out the time to do that alongside the editing, the reviewing, the writing features, the being on judging panels and making appearances, all the teaching, all the other things you do? How do you ensure you don't simply have the writing down at the bottom of the list? Uh, it's really hard. You know, one of the reasons in the year since I left the Times, I have been able to prioritize my writing, and that really was the point. I spent many years giving most of my time to other people's writing, and I wouldn't have done that if I didn't think, you know, it wasn't worth doing. It really was, um, and I was able to draw attention to things that maybe otherwise wouldn't have had the attention I thought they deserved. Um, but there comes a point where you think, no, actually, there's something I, I need to be working on, and I've been putting it off. And indeed, the book that I'm working on now, which as I say is nonfiction, is a biography of Washington Roebling, who is the man that built the Brooklyn Bridge, um, is quite a significant work in terms of the effort required. Some things can be done if you get up really early every morning and, and sit down for an hour. Some things can't, and this was one of them. I really couldn't work on this um, and have a full-time job. And so that's been really wonderful to be able to devote myself to this book. But plenty of people write and have jobs, and I did that for a long time. And it's a question of discipline. It really is. And it helps being married to another writer. So that when you say, I need this couple of hours, they know why you need it, and then they have their couple of hours. But, you know, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult. Being a journalist helped a lot because you, and it's something I always say to my students, learning to love deadlines, even self-imposed ones, is a very important skill. You know, it's a bit like, you know, deadlines, it's a bit like when you have a child. You know, it's like you have this hour to do your work. You can't say, oh, I don't feel like it right now. You just have to do it, whatever the deadline is. That's a really useful skill to learn, writing when you don't feel like it, because this is the time to write. And that teaches you to always kind of be able to turn it on. And again, not be, not have that sense of, you need a little bit of that sense of magic, but not too much, not so that it stops you working. But yeah, it's not, it's not easy, is the simple answer. <laughs> and I guess also, as I was also thinking, just looking at the range of things you do, you must also have to be able to focus the laser, as it were, because, yeah. you know, you, you, you write on neurosurgery or the Vikings or folk music, but then 
you know, with the biography, you really need to go into that in, in depth. So you're capable of surveying the, you know, a wide terrain, but when it, when it matters. And I guess that's, that's also something for people who are not doing necessarily literary things in their day job, but trying to get on with their writing. They also may face the similar challenge of sort of, of focus. Yes. Do you have, do you have any sort of tips to, to pass on there about how to achieve the focus when you need it? Or is it again a matter of sort of practice and self-discipline? Yes, I think it's partly it's practice and self-discipline. You know, it's not checking your email every 20 minutes. I know how hard that is. I speak from experience. I don't, you know, there are no tricks. There are no shortcuts. There are no shortcuts. I have said, you know, a story that I always tell my students and really anyone else who will listen. Um, when I was at the Times, we ran an interview with uh, an American crime writer called Nora Roberts, who is one of the world's most successful authors. And she publishes five or six books every year. I didn't do the interview myself. It was done in America. And um, she told our interviewer, who was asking her, you know, what her secrets were. And she said that she had only one rule of writing. And that rule was ass in the chair. That's where the focus comes from. And I suppose also you raised the issue of covering a broad range of topics. You know, for me, even in the book that I'm working on now, I'm not an engineer. I'm not even a historian. But then I'm not writing a book for engineers or historians. I believe I find this man's life and work fascinating. I want to convey why I find it fascinating in a way that is intelligent and serious without being too specialized and therefore off-putting for as broad an audience as, as possible. I think, and it's something I always believed in my journalism, I think there is a tendency in our culture towards dumbing down. I'm afraid I think that tendency comes from the top. I think, you know, the people that I meet, the people that I talk to, readers, want intelligent, engaged, serious topics, things to think about, things to learn about. And I think if you're an intelligent and engaged person, you can ask the right questions of a neurosurgeon, about an engineer, about folk music. You know, by no means, I'm not saying I'm an expert on anything, but you can learn how to ask the right questions. That's what I hope I do. And if you sit down and ask yourself, what is it about this that interests me? That's a great place to start. I absolutely recognize that sort of restless curiosity, which you're just describing. What it means, I suppose, is that you do a lot of different things. And so you don't carve out a career as a novelist or a no. poet or a biographer, which I suppose has pluses and minuses. I and mean, how do you how do you see that? Um, I guess I see it as just the way it is. Yeah, I guess sometimes it's not that I look at other people and think, I wish I could be like that. I guess it's one of the benefits. Maybe I did that when I was younger. <laughs> I remember when I was at college, 
um, at university, um, I read one of the novels that had a big influence on my really wanting to be a novelist was A.S. Bryant's Possession, which came out, I think, in 1989, my last year at university. I remember being very dejected reading it because A.S. Byatt is so wonderfully engaged with the, with the natural world, which plays a big part in that novel. And I grew up in New York City, and I remember thinking explicitly, I can never be a novelist because I don't know the names of trees. <laughs> R- remediable on the face of it. <laughs> but, you know, now... I suppose I think I'm better at saying, all right, I don't know the names of trees, and I still don't know the names of trees. I'm less hard on myself. You know, I'm more appreciative of the fact that I'm interested in everything. That's the way I am. I'm not going to stop being that way. So to wish I could focus on one thing is kind of pointless. I'm very lucky. You know, I'm interested in a lot of things. I get to find out about them. I get to watch a neurosurgeon at work or learn to fly a plane or, you know, anything like that. And and that wide variety of experience feeds everything that I do. That's the thing about being a writer, particularly a writer of fiction, is all that stuff, it just goes into you and you kind of never know when or how it might appear or might be useful. And I, I don't think that's just a story I tell myself to make myself feel better. I, think it's, I do think that's really true. My thanks to my guest in this podcast, Erica Wagner. You can find out more about the Faber Academy by visiting faberacademy.co.uk. And you can follow the Academy on Twitter, at Faber Academy. And you'll find out more about Erica at her own website, ericawagner.co.uk. I hope you'll join me again soon for the next podcast in which my guest will be Australian novelist Catherine Heyman. But from me for now, thank you for listening and goodbye.